Okay, we are live, and my guest is Michael Tessarian. Michael is a co-host, along with David Whitehead, of Unslaved. He's the author of many books and articles. He's a filmmaker. Uh, he's from uh, Northern Ireland, and he's an activist. Uh, Michael, thanks for joining me. Oh, it's a great privilege. Thank you so much for the invitation, Chuck. You know, Michael, I mean, you've had me on your show many times. I admire your approach and your, your learning and the, the whole unslaved approach, which I certainly embrace this idea that we've in many ways been programmed in life and that we need to debug ourselves by searching for truths and then uh, expressing those truths with other like-minded people. And uh, so I want to talk a little bit, I want to start by just talking a little bit about you and your process, how it is that you became who you are politically, because you're quite a figure, and uh, you you have an enormous presence, particularly in the online world. So what makes you tick, Michael? Well, thank you for that. Uh, well, a curiosity, I'd say, but uh, if you go back to the roots, I think we mentioned this on your previous program where I was on, you kindly invited me, is that I came from a staunch Marxist background. I'm Irish. We grew up in London and Belfast and in Ireland in general before I left to the States. Uh, but they were so uh, staunchly Marxist that uh, it was from their uh, uh, abusiveness, right, uh, to themselves and to others, uh, their, their scurrilousness uh, and, that, and the um, unbelievable obvious hypocrisy. Here they are living in the capitalist world, benefiting from the capitalist world, uh, doing everything that uh, people within a capitalist society do, but giving it all this. So, uh, and, and maybe some of the ideology would have stuck except that you could see the scurrilousness of the person. So I just pat myself on the back for having at least enough rationality to discern between what somebody's ideology was, you know, and then the way that they, because speaking is one thing, acting is another. So, uh, and not just them, but their extended friends. And then this went on, you know, for all, right through my teens, you know, having to listen to them and, and, and pretend to be interested in what they were talking about. And of course, left wing, left wing politics is very active in Ireland because remember you have the whole Republican movement. It's not just a intellectual thing. My father was very much involved on a street level with the Irish situation. So this was something that was uh, very, very prominent in our life and with the extended friends. But as I say, without exception, Pretty much every single one of him and his communist, you know, these Marxist buddies, not to mention some of these extreme Republican parties like the INLA and all who are openly Marxist agenda. It was so hypocritical, scuzzy and and all of that, that that made me already have a major uh, revulsion, you know. And then, yeah, before, like in the early 80s, I start studying interesting things, all sorts of interesting things that would now would be coming, you know, considered alternative or conspiratorial. But the ball really got rolling in America in, in 1990, around about the Desert Storm period, the first one. And then I was getting hold of, you know, Nord Davis's work and Ralph Apperson's work, Eustace Mullins's work, uh, uh, Father Jack Moore, a whole bevy of people. And this brought sidelighting to all the history, like your work does. It, it, it takes what people know about normal history and then sidelights it so we have a whole other picture. And then we say, wait a minute, this, this middle ground was always left out. We, we need the background, we need the foreground, but we need this middle ground and we need even some sidelighting. That got me really interested. Uh, I would meet veterans in the street in America who would literally meet you at the bus stop or you know at other places like that. There's so many of them in those days. Reagan had emptied all of the hospitals, I'm sure you know this. Yeah. And so a lot of these poor, poor people, and I was struck by their wisdom 
even under their psychosis. You know, and the psychosis, of course, was all the drugs from the VA hospital. It wasn't them. They were actually in tune. So I'm sure the same thing is where you live in New York or whatever, you know, and, and I was meeting him in the, on the streets of San Jose and Santa Clara, and they were whipping out dollar bills and go, hey, man, do you know what this is? You know, and instead of being, hey, get away from me, I was going, what do you mean? What does it mean? And so an education, you know, and of course it was Desert Storm. There was a lot of patriotism. Uh, and then I got from Nord Davis, a Christian writer, and, your, you know, uh, many others I could mention, these little pamphlets saying, wait a minute, the Carlisle Group, you know, connections to the Arabs. Uh, Halliburton, mm. big insider smile. So I'm saying, what, what is this? You know, so I was introduced for the first time to see, hey, it's not really about politics, it's about big business uh, and so on and so forth. And then conspiratorial families like the Bushes, right. you know, uh, and I started to read up on that at the time. Lyndon LaRouche had a book on Bush and I think he was even arrested because he had written it or some, you know, we used to I see these posters. Yep. Yeah. So, you know, not that I agree with everything Lyndon LaRouche's yeah. people say, but a lot it, it, it rings true a lot when he's talking in general about the movement of history and, and other conspiratorial groups that the world doesn't know about, like the black nobility and things like that. So this fascinated me because I could, coming from Britain, I could see that every account he had of conspiracy was accurate. See, a lot of people in America don't report accurate history about the continent. He did. So although I didn't buy into everything he was saying, and I'm very, I think they started off as a very le ultra left-wing group, uh, just as an aside, but again, picking up those books and picking up other Patriot works, uh, this got me started. And then I got actively involved because rather than sit passively reading it, like a lot of people do, I started to photocopy the best parts of these books, whether it was by Nord Davis or, you know, Tex Mars or Ralph Epperson, you know, Eustace Mullins, especially, and many, many other works. And do you know that one of the one of the books we excerpted, it's interesting, given your latest book, was The Protocols of the Elders of Zion. We uh, also used to give those out with our own sort of commentary, you know, uh, and we didn't say it was Jewish or anything like we were we were thinking it was more in uh, Masons, Masonic, sure. uh, you know, yeah, you know, which is a, which is 50 percent cor correct, you know. But of course, like yourself, one has to go so much further to really unpack it. But I would photocopy them at high expense, you know, in those days it was working grocery in the streets mm -hmm. of Bay Area, you know. I never liked it there, by the way. I really did not like California for many, many reasons. One reason is the utter superficiality of the people. <laughs> and uh, and also the resistance, because I suddenly found out what a back, you know, uh, backlash and, and uh, blowback, because we would systematically put out all of these photocopies, books, little pamphlets, little staple things that we'd made at places of work and on billboards and in, in public park places. You go back 24 hours and some buggers throwing them away. And we used to know where they threw them because you recycle. So it would always be in the paper recycle bins. And we'd go and find all of our stuff there. Well, freedom, right? Freedom of speech. See, people think this is all new now. I'm talking about the early 90s. You had no freedom of speech then either. People were censoring our stuff. So then I got another vision of America with a big smile on her face, right? But actually very, very left-wing and very, very uh, censoring of, of people who are, you know, have a right to speak up according to the Constitution. And so, you know, that led to another thing and another thing. And we realized, hey, we've got this anonymous hand against us. You know, uh, like a lot of these people we're reading, they're saying that they, you know, people like uh, Springmeyer, uh, you know, been arrested, uh, put in jail. And that, and not just him, but many others as well. Uh, Geo Griffin, they've all had this blowback. So I found, hey, wait a minute. It's not as open as, you know, uh, we coming from Britain. Think, oh, America, the, you know, the streets paved with gold. Everybody's smiling and open-minded. And of course, that road, if you follow it a little bit further, actually will lead to telling you, which is the, the most extraordinary chop from the guillotine, is how socialistic America really is. One thing leads to the other. You first discovered, oh, these people are not as open-minded as they thought. Not only that, but then you, you meet the tyranny. This is not 
I'm not speaking generally for everyone, of course, but there seems to be in the most affluent places built on the roots of capitalism, or at least allegedly so, turn out to be extremely brainwashed and socialistic and intolerant and fascistic. So you see, then what do you do with that? You know, so one thing led on to the other. And it was, it's been an education, you know, so people say, oh, Michael, I love your work and all. Hey, I am learning as much, you know, I'm learning from your work right now. Your work has inspired me this last couple of years. Uh, but you have to have an open mind for that and not get stuck in concrete. All the people I've known, all the friends, you know, that studied with me from these 90s periods, they're no longer friends because they got stuck in some quicksand and they remained there mentally for the rest of their lives. I, on the other hand, have stayed open, get, you know, uh, all my arms around all the information that you could possibly get and synthesize it and keep it flowing. Don't get stuck in one particular viewpoint. So I'm learning as much as, you know, with, luckily with media, you can turn around in, in real time and often through writings and blogs and stuff, get your thoughts out, you know, through a website. And that's basically what I've continued to do. I mean, all it maybe is different is that it's become a little bit more sophisticated. It's a little bit more, you know, it's not as rough around the edges of some illiterate. I've learned how to write. I've learned how to you know, make books and, and synthesize my thoughts and also peel it down like you do in a very succinct way so that the, uh, the modern reader, you know, taking very things from ancient writers or writers who maybe wrote in a very uh, stolid style, you know, and it's not for our age, I will maybe take some of their ideas, you know, and represent them. And this goes even for philosophy. I'm very interested in philosophy, but how, who the hell is going to read Hegel and Schelling and, you know, and Goethe and all these people in, in their idiom. So what I do is in my books, I will just... Uh, you know, very similar to what you do is just make it palatable, you know, for the for the modern age, right? Very, very important ideas that need to be brought back. Uh, amazing, fascinating. I mean, I think that my journey has been similar to yours. Um, I'm struck by your observation about your left-wing background, similar to mine. Um, and it's interesting how the, the left, which it, it publicly uh, promotes a certain set of principles for the masses, how they're actually very much at, at the very epicenter of the wealth and power in the world, and that how the big multinational corporations, certainly the big bank institutions, the central bankers like the Federal Reserve and others, and by the way, Eustace Mullins wrote a classic book about that, as you probably have read, um, you know, that, that they, they have an informal power that is secretive and that's international and that is... Uh, that they wield, I don't know if they wield it in the sense of like sitting around in some smoke-filled room and plotting. That's something that I have no idea about, but I tend to think similar to the, what, what Whitaker Chambers described in his book, Witness. He had been a former communist who basically saw the light, he became Christian, he, he turned on communism, and he turned in the people that he was managing for the Soviet Union right. to the uh, to the wills, to the... Uh, Roosevelt administration, um, but he made reference to the, 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 he called it the conspiracy of gentlemen. In other words, you have people who are in very powerful positions who tend to think the same. They don't need to get together because they all have the same mind almost. Um, I remember I once asked my communist uncle, I said, how is it that you work? I mean, do you get a, 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 do you get a note from Moscow? I mean, does the Kremlin send you, you know, directives? And he said, no, we don't need that because we all think the same way. We don't need to have, you know, it's like they, it's almost like a, a programmed approach. And it's based upon this incredibly arrogant idea that they can change the world, that they can be almost like messianic without God, without Christ, you know, that they're, they're secular messiahs 
that somehow we owe them something, that, that they're going to transform human nature. I mean, Obama, who I think was sort of a tool of this, he talked about change, you know, without telling us what he meant by that. Um, and, and yet, you know, the, the sovereign individual under God recognizes that it's up to their own life and their own self to change their life within the, within the confines of nature in any way they see fit and that they don't need these messiahs to change the way we think and the way we operate and to try to control the externals of our lives. You know, they try to control education, mm -hmm. media, you know, welfare, uh, finance. They control the value of our dollar through their private banking system. You know, they put a lien on our property. They, they're basically retarding our ability to compete. And you would think that these multinational corporate heads who tend to be part of this conspiracy of gentlemen, these left-wing leaders, that they would be pro-capitalist, but they're not. You know, they're, they're centralizing government control. They don't want competition to come up. They want to dumb down people so that they're pliable. I mean, a good study of a figure in history that was, was a major mover in this was the educator John Dewey, who, uh, you know, he wanted to, and he sort of was a, a, a synthesis between the radical left, which he was, and he sat at the foot of Stalin, and he went to Moscow and made the pilgrimage, but also what we would conventionally call the right, which uh, was the Rockefellers and the, uh, you know, the, the big, big moneyed interests, both of which had the same interest regarding the future of American people, and especially when they would go after the children, how to educate the children in such a way that they're, I mean, for lack of a better word, they're semi-lobotomized, mm. you know, how to dumb people down so that they can punch a time clock in these enormous factories and not be dissident and not, you know, not be dissatisfied and how to mold a new type of person that would fit into this bizarre fantasy that they have of a one world ant colony. So, you know, I mean, I, I view, you know, my, my, my research has been similar to yours in that way. I've tried to look at the secret secretive workings of society, which is hard to know and which I don't want to overstep because I don't know. Ultimately, I'm not a member of a secret society. I don't know how they operate, but I think there's an enormous amount of evidence that they do operate and that they do intersect and that there is a, a web of secret societies and people who are either winning or unconscious uh, assets of that society who tend to control our culture our economy and our politics. I agree 100%. I think, oh, and all about your comment about Obama, he is clearly an Islamist. That this is worrisome enough. Uh, but you're quite right. The the uh, schooling, like John Taylor Gatto. I don't know if you've had him on, but you know the whole idea of the dumbing down. This is cr crucial because socialism is a low is for low brainers, and and also. Pretending to what you just said, remember, there's a big difference with classical liberalism. One day, you know, maybe we'll ha we'll have you on to talk about that, and what the what what America considers the left. They're, they're actually often considered synonymous, and yet they're not really. Classical liberalism is is, is much more right wing, if you will, and even pro conservative. I mean, pro capitalist than what we now in America is written large. You know, so there's all of these nuances to bear in mind, and the, so I agree with you that you have to go very slowly. Don't presume. Uh, there will not always be direct evidence for what we will believe, you know, or at least see, it's almost like a, the dumbing down process. 
it's not that there isn't evidence for what someone like myself writes. It's like there maybe there, I, I believe there's even a lot of hard evidence. I, I turn my people on to this, you know, where whether it's about Irish origins or anything else I'm writing about. But the thing is, if the people that are listening are so dumbed down and mind controlled and controlled, then it doesn't matter how many filing cabinets of actual hard evidence you bring in. They're impervious to it. This is the thing, you know, uh, which is extraordinary. I mean, your work is succinct and your work has got the evidence and many other writers do as well. It's right there empirically. But people, you see, are not with you anymore. The, the reason has been so eroded, you know, uh, I mean, that you can see an Obama with this uh, advisor, this Dahlia Mogahab or whatever her name was, you know, you can see him uh, totally uh, c concealing his, his ancestry. You can see him espousing open communism, you know, and 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 the public just think it's wonderful. We're going to have free cell phones or something. I mean, the, the logic, the lunacy of it. But again, in my career, you see, if you say it was to scroll forward to the 2000s right now, why this search has to go on is because people in who were left-leaning, many of them, some of them well-meaning as well, thinking they were making change, overlooked one of the most extraordinary things that you bring out, and that is that in 1989 and 91, when the wall came down and all the physical trappings, statues were falling, they were burning the flags, burning the icons, and everybody in the West, not everybody, but the vast majority of people went back to sleep thinking, well, there's the end of communism. What needed to be brought to the table and what animates people like myself then, you know, when you are open-minded and you're not just thinking the beast is gone, is this incredible fact that a new complexion, right, uh, the one that the Fabians would have preferred, you know, years before, of course, it is their version of Marxism. But that is a study in itself, which a lot of people will not take up. What is Marxism as opposed to, say, Hegelianism? Uh, how did it change? What is the what is the left Hegelians as opposed to the right Hegelians? Do you think people want to, they go, the wall came down, I sang along, I waved my little flag, you know, I cried some tears and lit a candle. Brilliant, it's all over. Uh, wrong. So, you know, the impact of your, of your work and others who've, who've, who've understood this, the penny has dropped, then makes you very, very aware of how this softer socialism, you know, has, has been able to almost unmolestedly you know, with very, very few people even being aware of it or wanting to acknowledge it, polluting uh, our environment, polluting our schools, polluting the media. Media is a huge weapon in their hands, like Lenin and Trotsky had already announced in the 1920s, that if we can use this medium, you know, the ubiquitous media oracles, we, we'll, we'll have them all controlled. So uh, once, once I think, for me anyway, once that penny has dropped, then you still have this vocation. And, you, and no matter how much affluence and how much silliness, you still got to continue fighting to uncover now, of course, pertaining to your book, though, and this is a more of a controversial aspect, is that in order to conceal the true venomous pestilence of our age, those very forces know how to get red herrings and scapegoats. You know, i.e., anti-Semitism, blame the Jews, like that. So there's another factor already that needs to be brought in, which I think is new. I think this whole conspiracy movement, you know, there's what there's you, there's <laughs> what do we got there? You know, we've got uh, Chuck Sasser, or you know, one or two others. Uh, who are even approaching this issue, right, of revisioning Judaism in, a, in, in regards to the conspiratorial thing. And I, I'm glad to join it because we have Islamo-communism as the, as the major threat where these two monsters have joined up. And so, you know, your work and one or two others, you know, and I'm glad to also champion this and I'm going to make it very central to my message from now on, you know, and again, largely thanks to your work of explaining it so beautifully. But this is the key. Otherwise... If you go by these red herrings, you'll never see the culprit. You'll never smell out the real tiger in the long grass because they're expert at camouflage and expert at setting up scapegoats so that they never, you know, they never get revealed.
No, I mean, I, look, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think that while the fall of the Soviet Union was a, a great accomplishment, in my opinion, it was not expected by the establishment. If you listen to a lot of their talk in the 1980s, they continue to assume that the Soviets would continue forever, and it didn't happen. And Russia did break up, and there were a lot of good things coming out of that. You've got more freedom-oriented republics like the Baltic states and other nations that are emerging from it. It's all good. But that the the conspiracy continues. It, it's it's um, Again, I refer to Whitaker Chambers. I don't know if you read his book, Witness. Oh, a, the man was yeah. one of the most... They should be where, where are the statues to Whitaker Chambers? Oh, you know, I would ask. I mean, his book, and especially the first paragraph, the letter to his children, where he talks about the difference between belief in God and belief in man. That's the struggle. It goes all the way back. He uses metaphorically to the Garden of Eden that when Eve was offer, offered the uh, forbidden fruit by the serpent, who generally is viewed as Satan, that this was promise that she could know good and evil. She could know all things by participating and by partaking of the fruit. In other words, that she could become God, that she could overthrow God in heaven as a human being, as she and Adam, and that they could engage in the ultimate heresy, which was becoming gods on earth uh, by knowing everything, by having a level of cosmic consciousness that, that none of us could know because there obviously are mysteries that we can't know as human beings because we're not God. And um, oh, sorry about that. The um, so, so the point is that since the days of Adam and Eve, you've had this ongoing tension between those who believe in God and those who believe in man, that the communist movement in all of its manifestations, which occurs in every generation, is the movement for man. They believe that the human mankind can create a utopia on earth that we are the earthly messiahs, that we can basically, it's a secular view that we can create a new world on our own versus the, um, the more God-based belief, which understands that man has a limited sovereignty granted by the creator of the universe, the great sovereign, and that as such, we exercise that sovereignty within confines of existence and reality and a moral and ethical code, which was, I, I would argue, to live at Sinai for the mankind. And that in that context, we can make life better for ourselves and for our neighbors and even for the world, but only in that context and only as human beings, as imperfect beings, we're not perfect. And the entire diatribe of the Torah, of the Bible, against idol worship, which is the main theme there, idol worship is controlled by man, the state. The idol is a false image that is controlled behind the scenes by people who have an agenda who are imperfect, but who want to impose that agenda on the rest of us by use of smoke and mirrors, by hocus pocus. So the believer, the, the reform of the early Israelites was to reject that, even though they weren't all that successful, but they tried to reject that kind of earthly control and say, I believe in a higher power, and as such, I'm not going to be manipulated by these human forces. And, of course, the one man who really stood up to that power was Jesus of Nazareth, who I think was the greatest human being ever to live. I mean, he stood up in the face of the Roman Empire and, and Pontius Pilate, and when Pilate said to him, um, where do you derive your authority? 
And he said, my authority comes from somewhere well beyond here. You know, my authority comes from heaven. And as such, he was, in a way, the first individual. He was the first man to stand up against the secular earthly powers of the state and say, I'm not going to be controlled by the state. I have my own conscience. I believe in a creator of the universe who has immutable laws, and I will live by those laws, not by the, the made-up, arbitrary, artificial laws that you're creating. So, mm -hmm. yeah. So therefore, every generation, whether it be, you know, the, the time of the Soviet communists or the Nazis or anywhere else, we're all having to deal with the same informal conspiracy, this attempt by people who believe that they can prop themselves up and control us to, uh, to do just that. And we have to expose it, just like what you're doing, Michael. You have to expose it and bring people's awareness that they've been had, that they've been sold a bill of goods. And it's not easy because... Most people, to a certain degree, have been either brainwashed or they've submerged these things at an early age because they don't want to fight it because it's easier to go along to get along. Yeah, the good news, though, is that people can unbrainwash themselves, but they have to do that through patient uh, research, which is of some great figures from the past, but also keep up to speed with, you know, the writers of... Uh, of a more recent time, you know, uh, like like your Ann Coulter's and yourself and and, uh, and and David Horowitz and others, and I would even include hugely in that uh, John Loftus, you know, the Secret War Against yeah. the Jews. Sure. Uh, yeah, because these are all pieces we need in order to uncover the real predator, because the real predator, the tiger in the long grass, is expert at creating camouflage way in advance. And, of course, we know that Jews, the mass of Jews, have always lived not just as third-class citizens, but fourth, fifth, sixth, class citizens, wherever they've been, uh, uh, the whipping boy, the, the, the obvious scapegoat, that has to be factored in at, at every at every given point. And especially, I think, when, uh, well, you know, like I said, your work, when I read your work first, it reminded me very much of Hilaire Belloc. Uh, people should read his book called The Jews. I mean, it, your work is, I don't know if you read Hilaire Belloc, but he was a great historian, yeah. the Victorian, sort of latter Edwardian Victorian period. And a lot of your work corroborates what he's saying, not just him, but others as well. But that's that's one book that really, when I was reading yours, I was like having almost take a, a second take because, you know, I, I'd taken notes and I've had them for years, you know, again, as a sort of alternative, you know, here's one paradigm, the Jews are in control of the world conspiracy. And then there's the counter argument. You know, and I, I always have both, whether I'm dealing with philosophy or psychology or conspiracy, I always have the counter arguments absolutely, you know, bubbling away on my mind as well. But um uh, but in, in terms of, I think if, if somebody was done to want to understand what, why I'm even involved is be in, 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 in this kind of work and not doing something else like music or business, it is because I believe that uh, there is one overarching major conspiratorial unit, you know, that I call the Black Lodge that has created all of this. So when somebody's saying, well, it's the Jews, you know, I would go, look, uh, why, why, why do you say that word? But you can't say Freemason. You so it's it's like to me very. I see the dodge every which way. It's not that Jews are not Freemasons or haven't had a huge role in all of that, or ha even had a huge role in subversive activities. Of course, we they have. We know that. You know, with manipulations of uh, banks and Wall Streets and and, and and stock exchange, we we know all of that. That's all. Nobody's denying any of that. Right. But 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 the thing is, the person who quickly says the word Jew in 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 this movement, you'll wait for you know hours and they won't get round to talking about rosicrucians or freemasons or black nobility and, and so finally or or papacy or even you know the jesuits and i'm just like wow they, they seem to be eating one you know they're eating the, the they're eating their uh, cheerios without the milk i mean 
they're on one diet. I mean, is this how limited this movement is? So then I had I felt duty bound then, you see, to start sidelining. And as I say, my ult ultimate agenda is to get to the real predator. But to do that, you've got to uh, unravel these scapegoats, these red herrings that have been put, I believe, deliberately in front of the people. And and probably the biggest one of all is the whole question of the role of, of, of Jews in, in this in this movement. And and your work goes, you can imagine how then refreshing it was to read what you're saying, because you really systematically are doing the same work of showing how ir irrational that is to even associate a socialist, let alone a communist, you know, with, with an Orthodox Jew. I mean, it, it, and all the rest of the stuff that you show is utterly preposterous. And the people who've accepted it, they're going to have to really, really revision. So it's not that we're, you or I are, are asking them to, you know, immediately uninstall what they think they know. But we're saying, no, here's some other evidence. It's up to you whether you want to look at it. You know, and, and even after looking at it, you may come out feeling, no, I'm rejecting this. But it's okay as long as you're familiar with it. We just deliver it up to you. And, the re you know, you can't, you you can walk the, what is it? You can walk the horse to water, but you can't make it drink. Right, right. Um, no, thanks for mentioning my, my research um, in, in my latest book, um, which is um, Left-Wing Antisemitism. Um, what I found was that uh, Judaism was subverted 100 years before Adam Weishaupt formed the Illuminati in 1776, which began the subversion of Christian Europe in the modern times. Not that there hadn't been subversive movements before, both in Judaism and Christianity, but um, as I've said, they happen every generation. But this was really the first movement that really made inroads and really began to bore within and damage the very body of Judaism. And that was the false messianic movement of Shabtai Zvi. Now, Judaism has always been uh, susceptible and vulnerable to messianic movements because we did not accept Jesus as the Messiah. Christianity has an advantage in that way. You have a Messiah. Whether or not he was the Messiah, that's another question. That's a theological question. But the fact is that there is a Messiah for Christians who brought forth to the world all of the moral and ethical precepts of the Torah and how to live and how to worship and how to determine your destiny. And, and it brought in the issue of separation of church and state and uh, the, the enhancement of the individual and a lot of other very, very profound reforms. But with Judaism, we didn't have quite that. We have the reforms. We have the covenant that remains forever. In fact, Jesus himself said so in the book of Acts and in the book of Matthew. He recognizes that the covenant between the children of Israel and God is forever. And I, I believe that. But we didn't have like a physical Messiah. We didn't have a man like the Christians have. And so this guy comes along, Shabtai Zvi, and he poses as the Messiah, creates this huge movement in Judaism in the middle of the 17th century, um, very corrupt and very evil, certainly satanic. The way he expressed his, his messiahship was to commit perverted acts publicly and to subvert the Torah publicly by desecrating all of the Jewish rites and the Jewish means of worship. I mean, it sounds strange, but that's what he did. And that's the people, he was excommunicated immediately from his synagogue in Turkey. But nevertheless, he developed this following. It was like a rock star. It was like Mick Jagger touring, you know, touring the United States and you know, arenas. Worse. Worse. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 <laughs> by the way, I admire rock and roll. It's not a, a Yeah, song. yeah. No, I know, I know the meaning. He's perverting yeah. the soul. You know, he's perverting the man's soul. He's, he, yeah. he's totally, oh, fifth and column. He, yeah. 
the atmosphere around his 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 gatherings was like that. Lots of orgies and everything, you know, everything goes. And eventually he works his way toward Israel, um, which at that time was part of Turkey, and it was the southern province of Syria, and gets this uh, this guy that is sort of acting like John the Baptist, this uh, uh, Nathan of Ezra of Gaza, who introduces him, and he's the whole all of Judaism was watching this all over Europe, including very good, honorable, upstanding Jews who just got sucked into it. It's almost like a cult. Even a lot of non-Jews got sucked into it at the time. Then in 1666, he arrives in Constantinople and meets with the, uh, the sultan. And the sultan says, you have an option of either accepting Islam or I'm going to kill you. You know, you're going to be, we're going to shoot an arrow. And if you're really the Messiah, you'll survive it. And so he capitulated and accepted Islam. And 80, 90% of world Judaism said, oh, he's a fraud. And they were embarrassed. And this, this has been a sham. And it was gone. However, there was a segment, and it, for whatever reason, it, it was some of the more elite and more secularized elements of Judaism that held on to his messiahship. And in Europe, they became known as the Sabbateans. In Turkey and in the Islamic world, they became known as the Donma sect. They're still there. In fact, they say that Kemal Ataturk, the founder of modern Turkey, was a Donma Jew. No proof of that. But... but uh, they were in secret uh, practicing a form of Judaism that a very perverse form that had been developed by Shabtai Zvi and that they would change their stripes. They would become Islamic. They become Jewish back to Islamic. And then in the 17th, 18th century, one of their followers, Jacob Frank developed another similar cult in Europe by switching between Catholic, Protestant and Jewish and very perverse, uh, you know, practices now, this movement was very communistic in the sense that, on the one hand, it was wealthy and elitist. On the other hand, it was advocating a one-world order by getting rid of all religions, getting rid of all nation-states, getting rid of all aristocracy, all royalty, all monarchy, uh, all hierarchy, and creating this kind of a, a one-world orgy. I don't know. They mean getting rid of family, getting rid of love, getting rid of commitment, getting rid of property, getting rid of trade getting rid of all the institutions that make us free and that give us a sense of, you know, of, of advancement. And uh, this was, again, 100 years before Weishaupt, who basically did the same thing with the Illuminati, which was founded on, eight, on May 1st, 1776. And uh, it's interesting about the Illuminati. I mean, that's standard accepted history in Europe. But if you talk about that in the United States, they look at you like you've got, you know, you know, you're wearing a tin hat or something. Yeah. So it's disgusting. And yet the dates prove it. The the suppression of Jacob Frank's uh, organization is practically, you know, uh, corresponds to the rise of the Illuminati, which, of course, if one group is suppressed, uh, the public get too wary of it. It pops up another place. So the, the dates are very interesting confirmation here. And of course, the League of the Just. It, it, there's a there's a million other anarchist little satellite groups who watching the things that you're talking about go, why didn't we think of that? And then they emulate the template. I actually believe they're directly linked. But I, one can, I, there's even a case there's even a case to say that even some other boogaloo group can say, hey, I like the way they do that, right? And then they can mimic it. But in the case of, see, because earlier we were talking about there is proof for all of these things. Well, one of the most astounding pieces of proof is Karl Marx's stance on the Jews, like his first book, as you say, 
was uh, World Without Jews, right? It was renamed exactly. later. Exactly. Uh, here's, here's a man who is a Sabbatean, 100% illuminist. Clearly. He's a, he, he's a front man for a much more powerful cabal that you know, Engels, Frederick Engels, just picked this lunatic. You know, their relationship was a bizarre, to say the least, but he just picked them as a front man, didn't he? And, and even Mikhail Bukunin couldn't stand Marx's presence and, and was worried about him. So even people within the leftist movement were realized that uh, there's the, there's the uh, aroma of disingenuousness hanging around Marx. But coming more to the point, he writes this book, uh, which shows you, is the proof. So when people say, you know, you guys talk, but you don't have the proof. There's the proof of the Sabbatean order having a blow, right? A sideswipe at Judaism, because now that they've concealed themselves, because they're not Jews, this is the work that your book brings to light. But being having having to use this cover breeds a kind of a Freudian hatred, right? They're of the identification with the mask that they have to wear, but they hate that mask. So then they have to take side swipes, both at Christianity and at Judaism. And what is Marx's book? But exactly that, an incendiary propagandist, uh, uh, what do they call it, um, agiprop, right? A, a, a technique of, of, you know, their, their anger burns over or boils over, and then you get these kinds of ludicrous documents. And he's quite happy to see pogroms then, the mass slaughter, all under the name of the Sabbateanism, which is the communism, you know, but it's underneath. I mean, it's just absolutely extraordinary. Is it? Can you confirm if it's true or not that Marx's own name didn't even appear on the Communist Manifesto, isn't it, for some years? No, I mean, it was written anonymously. And, um, yeah, I mean, look, you're right to point out, like, the League of the Just, but um, I would just like to mention that um, the Sabbateans and the Frankists, there was, and this is a book that somebody should write, maybe I'll end up writing it, but there was a huge civil war within Judaism between these radical forces who were subverting Judaism and the rabbis who were religious and who were believers and who fought them. I mean, there, was, there were trials and there were excommunications and there was just a, a struggle for the Jewish soul that really went on throughout the 17th century and 18th century. Um, and that that's the aspect that the loyal aspect of that struggle, the Jews who were true Jews and who were Torah true, that's the story that needs to be told. Mm. But putting that aside, I think that you can make a link, for example, between the Illuminati and the League of the Just, which was this very shadowy group. We should note that um, when Weissop was exposed in Bavaria, uh, because uh, one of his uh, his couriers was was caught with all these papers trying to subvert the B Bavarian crown, and then he was exiled. He spent the rest of his life under the tutelage of a British of a uh, German count, uh, uh, I think from Hesse -Go Gotha, or or a province. I don't have the information in front of me, but he continued to live there, continued to operate, continued to subvert Masonic Masonic lodges, and particularly the Scottish Rite Lodge in Scotland according to John Robeson, who wrote uh, Proofs of a Conspiracy, and, uh, and other lodges, the Orient Lodge. And uh, that's how the Illuminati would, would pro propagate. He died, I think, in 1830, around that time. He had been, written many other books. The League of the Just, I think you could argue, was an offshoot of the Illuminati because they appeared in different settings and under different names. I think that one can make the case, and I've seen it written, that they took root in the United States under the Skull and Bones group at Yale, you know, the secret society that is to the Bushes and to John Kerry and all these other people. Um, Certainly. And that also was formed in 1830, by the way.
So you had the League of the Just, which changed its name to the Communist League at the time of the publication of the Communist Manifesto in 1848, and that led to the revolutions of 1848. It was a guidebook for that. It's a manual for the movement toward a socialistic world order controlled by these enlightened, you know, God-men God figures, um, which is how they saw themselves. So, you know, this, this is really the launch in the modern times of what started out as the, the, the Chavez V, Jacob Frank conspiracy in Judaism, which spread to Christianity in the, in the guise of the Illuminati and the League of the Just. Exactly. And, you know, there, there were well-meaning, see, this is very infectious. There is a certain, especially if you're coming, if, you know, if your mind was on the old world, I'm thinking here of somebody like a great man like William Morris, you know, and it's infectious to read this stuff. So it had a, it had a currency. Uh, many people, even of the upper class, uh, went for it, you know, and not just your Robert Owens and your, your Godwins, you know, the father of uh, Mary Shelley and things like that. But it infected people who should have known better. But this is the beauty of it. That's why we're still talking about it today. This thing has lasting value. But coming back to your thing about the Sabbateans, many times when people, if there's people listening to us now who have a little bit of background and season, their season, they'll realize that a lot of accusations comes to both Ignatius Loyola and the Adam Weishaupt, in which they say they were Jews, you know, or Jesuits, whatever. Uh, some of the, it's quite clear that they, well, uh, Loyola was the head of the Jesuits and, and Weishaupt went to a Jesuit school. But some conspiratorialists say, yeah, that's all true, mate, but they were Jews first. You see, your work helps to under, make this clear that, no, no, when you say Jew, what the part that you're missing is that these are the Sabbateans who already are concealed under Judaism. Now, when you bring that piece to bear, I don't know about you, but suddenly there's forensic evidence. You know, it's like taking out an old case and saying, let's go over it one more time. But the piece that you offer is like Quicksilver. It now makes everything come together where, you know, no matter how you tried to put the pieces together, it just never looked right. And it wasn't right. It was partially right, but it would never fell. You know, it didn't have the framework. It, you didn't have the picture on the box of the jigsaw. When you bring this fact that hidden within Judaism, and we're, we're also talking hidden within Christianity, are these Lucifer, uh, well, Luciferans are not even correct words. Satanism, Satanists would be a better word because they are literally that. And they're orgiastic Dionysian types. And they don't want anybody with a model. Forget even if it's a religious model, like you're saying Jesus or, or any other uh, heroic being, you see, who's lifting the soul up, who's saying, rise above your limitations, you know, believe in something higher than thyself, you know, uh, and look up. You know, they don't want that. They want your head firmly in the mud. Like, for instance, Hegel would have said, be part of the world, be part of history, understand that philosophically you're part of an immense movement. And history was the synonymous word for the Geist or the spirit, the world spirit. Marx comes along, redacts this beautiful metaphysical teaching and says, no, no, you're part of a class. So right away, the, the metaphysical in Hegel is, is excised and thrown away, and you're no longer contemplating that. He's saying to the same people, this is left Hegelianism now, oh, no, you're part of history in the sense that you're part of a class. Oh, and what's more, it's a class struggle. So I don't know about you, but the difference between seeing yourself as part of the flow of spirit in the highest sense, manifesting and moving and change and, and change is natural and this little marxian redaction of a very high philosophy in which you're now just a little uh, slum dwelling ne'er-do-well part of a class get you know dethrone your elders of course if hegel had remained alive and of course his descendants did some of the other disciples of the right said look there is no cause for marxism there's no cause for communism because the very things that they want like as reform for the working class and we're all for that 
that is a, a pressure groups and, and, and nature itself, the very movement of history is already tending to that. Marx is acting as if there's no flow of history and there's no you know remedies to any of these things. They were already remedying themselves. Right. So the man's philosophy, now we're not talking about his, on this program we've been talking about his conspiratorial contributions. His own philosophy that is read widely from China to South America is bankrupt. The, the very orthodox Marxism, the Marxism that's been taught by these Zizeks and all these other cronies, you know, these Marxians and left throughout the whole of the world. And in India, there's not a single teacher that's not a Marxist, you know, or, or that has been uh, sort of morphed and repackaged by a Derrida or by a Foucault or whoever. In all of its color, all of its complexion, it's false. And that's just his official uh, message in life, let alone the, the more well, spurious yeah, I mean, conspiratorial why, actions. That's why they need force in order to prop it up, because it is right. false. It deals with what Marx called a, um, you know, false uh, realities. I mean, uh, and also I just would want to just as a, as a note point out that um, I don't know if there's any proof that Weissacht or Ignatius of Loyola no, no. had Jewish background. I mean, no, no, of course I, not. It's just, it's just an anecdote. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't think so, but who knows? No, That's no, no I don't think they did either. But there are some, you know, people come across oh. this when you're delving well-meaning, you open different files, and you see all of these uh, spurious, you know, and it happens. It's, it's like a it's like a sort of a stigmatization. But, some people but my, well, my point is that even say. if they were, right, my point is even oh. if they were, what you brought to the table is to, to slice that down the middle and dissect that and go, wait a minute, is he a really Jewish in the orthodox sense? You can throw that out right away because, of course, like you point out, that's impossible. No, they really know what I mean, clearly. And as far as Marx goes, Marx's book on the Jewish question, um, which was very popular, which was accepted as canon in the Marxist collection right up to World War II, when it became unfashionable, of course, um, it, it basically describes certain attributes to the Jewish people uh, in, in almost an anthropological sense, in an anthropomorphic sense, I should say, that these are literally things that were created by Judaism um, and that those things are the right to trade goods and services, the right to have money, which is an abstract uh, means of, of, of having property, ownership and um, and self self-esteem or not self-esteem but um, but the word he used I can't remember but you know individual identity ultimately and um, he viewed these things as what he called false consciousness in other words they were made up by some group that was trying to exploit other people this dichotomy this uh, dialectic it's the grand conspiracy theory of Marxism that somehow these institutions, private ownership, right to free trade and goods and services, family, faith, love, commitment, um, you know, the moral and ethical code, all these things, ultimately the identity of the individual himself are created. They're made up. They're not real. They are part of a, uh, the false consciousness. And the way to overcome that false consciousness is to overthrow these ideas and that since Judaism embodies these ideas and invented these ideas, the way to overthrow them is to destroy Judaism. Exactly. And of course that Christianity he viewed as an offshoot of Judaism. And if you get rid of the head of it, you get rid of the body, then everything else will wither away, whether it be Christianity or whether it be the United States and which is, which is established on these principles. And, and of course the false element of this is that these ideas are false. 
they are not false. They are quite real. They're abstract, but they are not only real, but they're virtuous. They are ideas that <clears throat> help the individual become self-aware and free and be able to control their own destiny. These are good things. These are the things that make up Christianity, and they are making up and continue to make up the United States. These are the principles of freedom. So Marx tried to demonize these things by claiming that they were Jewish and that the Jews are evil, and he created this dialectic, the, you know, the, the, the advancement of man through, through stages until they reach the utopian communist stage. First, they have to defeat this Jewish enemy, which embodies these ideas. And so I'm, just, I'm laying this out only to show what we're up against. And this is something that recurs again in every generation. It's needed. It's very, very needed because the uh, say if somebody just can't get the history right, they don't need to. The, the thing that they call corporate America is one of the offshoots of what you're saying. See, there's capitalism and then there's rich commun communists. People have not even downloaded that fact that there's a big difference between a capitalist and a rich socialist like a George Soros. Oh yeah, and and you know, and so the agenda that you're talking about, which is uh, subversive, that's what that is. When some somebody says, "I don't get what you're talking about," but I do know that, yeah, I do know that these big capitalistic monopolies are controlling the world. You're already wrong. Those are not created by healthy capitalists. Although I would add one critique, and that is, yes, a capitalist as a capitalist is failing to do his duty. If insatiable greed and, and, and self-interest uh, is all that he knows that that's what capitalism is, he hasn't read the fine print. A capitalist is also protector of the system to make sure that the socialist doesn't enter in. The capitalist, by definition, has a greater duty than most capitalists even are aware of. Some do, some know this, and that's great. But the capitalist ceases to be a capitalist by default if he ceases to be a defender of the body politic, of which you know he's meant to be a defender of capitalism, like Hayek and others have said. And when he ceases to do this and is only interested in the swimming pools and his, you know, his, his yachts, then in my eyes, he's already ceased to be a capitalist and is now part of the problem. But give be that as it may, the corporate structures that we see coming together and the monopolies, that is, you know, for people listening who just can't get any of the other abstract stuff, that problem, that in terrible, ter terrible problem that is getting laws changed in America, that's changing the face of Western civilization, isn't the result of capitalism like your Occupy movements and all these other pinkos want you to believe. Do your research. Read De Lorenzo's book, you know, uh, 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 The Problem with Socialism. Read Chuck Morse and these people, and you will start to see the deception that has been purveyed in the schools and the colleges that Alan Bloom and many other great minds tried to warn America against many, many decades ago, and nobody listened. But you see, one thing is good though. One another optimistic thing I think of is because these people are so utterly irrational, throwing the word Nazi around and the word fascist around, and a lot of the other things that they're doing are actually going to end up backfiring. They're going to lose their teeth. So I'm sitting saying, I hate what I'm seeing. You know, these lunatics running in the streets, like the thugocracy and the crusading. But in a way, by acting that mad, they're giving you a, you know, a keyhole vision into the utter madness of what you and I are now talking about, the utter evil, the Satanism that lies concealed in the shadows. This utter play is so boogaloo, so crazy, that in many ways, rational, decent people, you know, I think, recoil from it. And I, and I look to that. I hope, I hope more people do recoil from it. You know, I think the more they throw this word Nazi around for a start, any of their detractors is going to have eventually an incredible blowback on them. And then they'll be left toothless, you know, and, and we will have won a major victory, but not really moving very much if that, because it's rhetorical. A lot of communism, a lot of socialism, like you said about Marx's book 
and many other devices they use is largely rhetorical. It's usually to stigmatize their opposition, not engage with them. They're the real fascists. They're the real uh, intolerant, coercive uh, parties. Yeah, I mean, look, first of all, I want to talk a little bit about um, the corporations. For the most part, most average corporations are good. You know, they're, they're getting together. It's people getting together and organizing in order to provide a service or a product. And that they are community-minded. They're not just in it for the money. This is a myth in a way that's put out by the Marxists. They, are, they, they do have a moral side, and that's the traditional view of corporations, that they have a moral side. They have a spiritual side. They actually have to enter into a charter to get a corporate entity with a state and to do that they have to agree to certain standards in that state that's the traditional model and i think that's the model that most corporations follow but what you're talking about are the type of corporations that really are in it for the money in a way they you know adam smith the opera author of the wealth of nations he made many brilliant contributions the whole idea of the hidden hand of the economy is absolutely uh, spot on but the one negative byproduct to his work that I don't know if people, if we can really appreciate, is that he separated economy, like economics, from its original context, which was in the broader sense, a look at how we live. I mean, the word economics comes from the ancient Greek word for household, economia. You know, it was how you lived, it was how you organized your your, your home and your economy at home, you know, and that had to, everything to do with spiritual values, had everything to do with taking care of people. And by removing that, Adam Smith inadvertently created this idea of the unfettered capitalist, you know, corporatist, which is not really what, it's not, it's not actually natural. It's natural for a corporation, which is an organization of people, to take care of their own people and to do good in society because that's part of what human beings are about. That's hardwired into who we are. And by creating this entity that would be divorced of that and that would be purely a money-making machine, only looking at that as, a, as the goal, as the end goal, as opposed to a byproduct of creating goods and services, they've created this, this monstrous elitist machine that operates on an international level, and that these types of people who support communism for the masses, they're attracted to that. I mean, you look at a guy like George Soros. He's the worst kind of speculator. He represents the worst image of the stereotypical Jew as put out by the anti-Semite. You know, <laughs> he's like ripping off economies by manipulating their currencies. He's a speculator. He's a usurer, you know, from the old Middle Ages. <laughs> and yet he's also a communist, right? Right. Or it's every communist cause in the world. In fact, they even recently it's been uncovered that a, a George Soros group was handing out envelopes of cash to people who were protesting at the Supreme Court hearings for uh, Brett Kavanaugh, right? I mean, they're, they're, I don't want to get into him, but, you know, the point is that, you know, that he's an agitator to... To, to centralize and increase government under the guise that they're doing something good. And I don't think that a guy like Soros is some kind of a, uh, a camp follower either, a dupe, you know, somebody who's been sucked into 
a movement. He's a fully winning, fully conscious participant in what I would argue is an international communist conspiracy. I agree. And remember, just another th a bit of a warning for people is that if they don't act and they don't educate, there will be a consequence to that. One is that the, the agenda of these sabotans will just continue unmolested. But two, uh, if a small group actually is able to educate enough people for these people to be unseated, the nature of their evil is that they don't leave, roll up their carpets and just leave and say, okay, well done, fair play, Queensbury rules. In the past, as your book brings out, these people love chaos and conflict between Christians, between Jews, between Islam, between right and left. So devastation is in their wake. This is, this is the nature of this Medusa and the evil, that even if they feel that they're losing, they will cause so much damage on the corporate level, all right, or with the economy or whatever, you know, poor person like President Trump is doing his best to sort of heal as many of those wounds as he can. Uh, and I, I back him to the hilt in that. But the thing is that, you know, the damage has been done systematically. And if ever these people believe that they're going, you know, it, it, like the, uh, my mind thinks of the Barter Meinhof, that when finally those guys couldn't get out of jail with all these terrorist attacks and kidnappings and assassinations, they just topped themselves. The three leaders murdered, killed themselves, suicide. That's what I mean. You're dealing with a devil that you've got to know. It always has one more ace card up its sleeve. And so since chaos is the business of the Satanist, even if he fails, watch out because he'll, he'll, you know, he'll hit the red switch. And what I mean by that practically is they don't mind creating meltdowns of unimaginable proportions, you know, on a world stage, you know, even if they feel that they're going down the drain or they've been exposed, they want to see uh, other uh, results of their chaos. And through the media, they're quite able to do it. So there's a d degree of sophistication, right, which is not, in existence in the conspiratorial movement. They're still bashing away with sledgehammers. I understand it because it's early days, but there's a different kind of articulation and sophistication in knowing that, you know, knowing the enemy, like you said, knowing and being able to uh, look at these characters on the world stage and be very, very aware that mm -hmm. World War III, you know, they, they like, look at Clinton. We've already had evidence of that with this lunatic Hillary Clinton had she got in. Yeah, uh, absolutely. She, yeah. Yeah, and these are people who are communists, and yet her protestations. Um, anyway, it looks like we've reached a little bit of a patch here. Oh, okay. um, my guest is Michael Cesarian uh, on Slaved Podcast is the uh, podcast. Michael, I don't know what, what's going on with the computer, but we've had like a freeze. Um, so um, we've sort of reached the end of the hour. Either way, I was about to ask Michael if he would uh, mention his website and um, – oh give out his information. So since it's frozen, I'll do it for him. Unslaved podcast is the podcast. It's an incredible collection of podcasts with interviews with uh, people who are, it's just an amazing and eclectic cross-section of people. So check out Unslaved podcast to, uh, to watch uh, Michael, Michael Cesarian um, interview um, his guests along with, with his, his co-host, David Whitehead, um, and uh, check it out. And, of course, uh, thank you for watching, everyone. Check out my books available at Amazon.com. This is Chuck Morse, The Morse Force. And I want to thank you all for watching this afternoon. Have an excellent afternoon.